You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. I'm sure you've all heard the expression, What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, which was actually an allusion to a a very clever tourist uh, motto that Nevada had, and that is, Uh, the motto that what happens here stays here. Uh, And it's a thought that whatever you do there remains a secret. But when we come to Palm Sunday and Passion Week, the death and resurrection of Christ, the message is the exact opposite. In other words, what happened in Jerusalem must not stay in Jerusalem. Uh, And so we're going to look at Palm Sunday this morning from the perspective of the glory of Christ. And in fact, from Palm Sunday to our Good Friday service together, to Easter Sunday, all three are going to be tied around this theme of the glory of Christ. Uh, And it's in Palm Sunday that we get to view that glory from from two different perspectives. Uh, And so look with me at Matthew chapter 21. And the first perspective we're going to look at here is uh, the glory of Christ in his humiliation. Uh, The glory of Christ in his humiliation. Uh, If you look in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll notice that Matthew 21, all the way through chapter 28, about verse 15, is all going to focus on the final week of Christ's life. So you have seven chapters all devoted to just this, the Passion Week, uh, and what occurs during that week. And it's in particular, as we look at that week, but in a sense, throughout Christ's entire earthly ministry, we see the glory of Christ in his humiliation. Uh, Look at me at verses one and two again. Very familiar scene to us, which in some ways is dangerous because it's so familiar that we often miss the depth of his humiliation. Uh, You notice in verses one and two, uh, as they draw near to Jerusalem 
in the Mount of Olives, Jesus sends two disciples ahead uh, to go in and begin to make preparations for what will be the Passover at the end of the week. Jesus, the God-man, is going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. Uh, and we must never forget that that is the purpose and goal for which Christ came, to, to suffer and die for our sins. Uh, if you look at chapter 16 and verse 21, Jesus made a deliberate agenda for his disciples. When in Matthew 16, verse 21, he says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and it, on the third day be raised. So in other words, from Matthew 16, 21, all the way leading up to this point, Jesus has deliberately said to his disciples, I am going to Jerusalem to die. Uh, to suffer, uh, an indication of his humility. So much so that if you read a little further in Matthew 16, this is where Peter says to, to Jesus, you, you can't be serious. You know, I will do everything to protect you. And, and Jesus says, you know, get behind me, Satan. In other words, Peter, you don't understand. This is God's perfect will. This is why I have come. But in looking at this scene, notice in chapter 21 and verse 5, you have the quotation from the book of Zechariah there. And in that quotation, you have these words, Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. And there in that word humble, we have a picture of Christ's entire ministry and life here on earth, uh, that he came as one, as we saw in the Beatitudes, one who is meek and lowly, uh, gentle. And, and notice the, the description there, what a contrast between how kings and emperors typically would enter a town. Uh, we have references to Alexander the Great when, when he entered Jerusalem centuries later, that, that he would come on a mighty war horse, uh, that there was a great parade and celebration. Notice here, as Christ comes in, even though there's crowds that are swelling, uh, that there really is no, no big parade. There's no trumpets announcing his presence. Uh, there's no war horses, anything that would depict a picture of just military power and strength. Uh, he comes in humility, fulfilling this aspect of Zechariah's prophecy. Uh, here, here is your king, but he comes in as no other king you've ever seen or heard before. He comes meek and humble. So Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for your sins and for my sins. And so it's helpful maybe to look at then his coming to die, his humiliation, from the perspective of the atonement and obedience. Uh, theologians have, have throughout the centuries talked about two elements of Christ's obedience. They, they both work perfectly together, and that is the active obedience of Jesus Christ and the passive obedience of Jesus Christ. 
And what's meant by these is when you refer to the act of obedience, think of how Jesus Christ came to keep and fulfill the law. So he came to fulfill those righteous requirements by which now we can be righteous in Christ. That's his active obedience. His passive obedience means Jesus's willingness to come and endure pain and suffering to make the payment for our sins. And it's from that thought of passive obedience, which we derive the term Paschal or Passion Week, it refers to enduring, suffering, or painful experiences. As so when we consider the humiliation of Christ, we should consider it as being everything Christ endured. It, it reached its climax at his crucifixion and death, but it began with his incarnation. Uh, turn with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. And Paul reminds us of this very important truth that we must never lose sight of. In Philippians chapter 2 and verses 6 through 8. Philippians 2 verses 6 through 8. Uh, Paul speaking of Christ's humility. And then also how that humility should affect our relationship with one another. Uh, referring to Jesus Christ says, beginning at verse 5, and we'll back up. Uh, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And there you have Paul referring to what we call the incarnation, not that Jesus ceased being who he was, but he remained who he was, the Son of God, and in addition now became the Son of Man, fully with a human nature, yet without sin. And Paul indicates that was humiliation that culminated and reached its climax in his death on the cross. And so that imagery, that humiliation of Christ, is not just a historical fact or a biblical doctrine that we take off the shelf once in a while and look at, but it is to permeate even how we relate now to one another in Christ. Because that attitude, that mindset, should be in every disciple. But if you go back to Matthew chapter 21, in Christ's humiliation, we have not only Jesus becoming the God-man, but we also see in verses 10 and 11, that the one who created the heavens and the earth, is rejected by his creation. John's gospel puts it well when it says he came unto his own and his own did not recognize him. Notice Matthew 21 verses 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, 
This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So the question there, as we consider what is being said, is what does it mean that the whole city was stirred up? So it's Passover. The, the population of the city uh, expands tremendously. Um, historians estimate that it may have grown from like 18,000 people during Passover to over 150,000 people uh, flooding into this city uh, to observe this religious time. Well, the, the word stirred up is the root for our term seismic. So when you speak of like a, an earthquake, uh, in other words, the city is agitated. Uh, it is emotionally in, in raw emotion here. And the reason is not maybe necessarily because they're saying, good, the Messiah has finally come. Because we realize there's two different crowds that are a part of this scene. There's the crowds that are coming with Jesus from Lazarus's hometown who are Galileans. And then there's another crowd that's coming out of the city to sort of see what's happening here. Uh, and so their, their explanation as to who is this man is not necessarily an affirmation of faith. The response that, well, could this be the prophet Jesus the prophet of Nazareth, could be a reference to, is he what Deuteronomy 18 talked about? What, what Moses said that a prophet is going to come after me and you must listen to him? Or are they kind of saying, what kind of prophet could possibly come out of Nazareth of Galilee? This would have also had political repercussions um, because you have a Roman prefect who is over the city of Jerusalem at this time. So for that Roman prefect to hear news of a potential Galilean king or prophet wanting to usurp power and authority would also present the citizens of Jerusalem in a very precarious position and place. And so we see here once again, Christ's humility. Here he is the, the, the creator of all things coming into a city whose citizens, who he himself spoke into being, are saying, who, who is this? And there's no real conclusive assertion of belief here or faith in Christ. Well, that gives us a glimpse into why what happened in Jerusalem must never just stay in Jerusalem. We must speak of the glory of Christ reflected in the humiliation of Christ. But there's another element that comes out of this text, and that is that why must whatever happened in Jerusalem never just stay in Jerusalem? And that is that we have the glory of Christ in his exaltation. And so just as we saw there are degrees in which we see the humiliation of Christ, there are degrees in which we see the exaltation of Christ. And we already had happened, Jesus does miracles. Those indicate a degree of his exaltation, his power. Uh, we've had the transfiguration happen, where Peter, James, and John see a, a glimpse into that greater glory that is Jesus Christ. Uh, by the end of the week, we'll get to his 
his death and his resurrection. That would be certainly another aspect of his exaltation. But what do we see here on this entrance into Jerusalem that gives us a, an added glimpse into Jesus Christ as a king, as an exalted king? Well, look with me at Matthew chapter 21 in verses 1 through 3. Uh, keep in mind that Matthew is, is writing his entire gospel to show that Jesus Christ is the promised king of Israel. And as, as Tony prayed in the beginning, that, that he is the one who will reign on the throne of David. Uh, so there's been no one in Israel's history since the dismantlement of the monarchy, since the dismantlement of the United Kingdom, where they have had one on the throne of Israel who is in the lineage and line of David. But as you get to this passage in section in Matthew 21, keep in mind that Matthew 21 through chapter 23 is all where Jesus Christ is going to assert his authority over Jerusalem. And that begins with his entrance into the holy city. So back to verses 1 through 3, uh, that Jesus Christ is worthy of worship. And so as he comes in, you get to verse 3, and he gives his disciples instructions about going to get this donkey and the, the foal of a donkey. And then he says in verse 3, if anyone sees says anything to you, you should say to him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So it's this phrase, Lord, that's intriguing. Um, it's, it's a title that means one who has authority or power. So you can look at different commentaries. Some will say, well, maybe this was a prearranged thing, uh, that Jesus had different connections there in the city. He, he mentioned a few that, that he'll be coming. Uh, he'll need to borrow their beast of burden. So you just tell them, in a sense, Jesus, who already talked to you about this, needs it now. Uh, that is one way you can look at it. Uh, but it, it is interesting that Matthew only uses this word Lord here in reference to, to God in his gospel. And we do know that the, the, the title Lord in the Old Testament is the equivalent of Yahweh. And a designation of that in the New Testament in Greek is the title kurios or Lord. So it is a very strong statement of Matthew, not just saying, well, Jesus needs this, but in a sense, God needs this. Yahweh needs this, equating in a very subtle way, Jesus is God. The Lord, Yahweh, needs this at this time. And then go down to, again, chapter 21, but notice verse 5, we reference this prophecy of Zechariah. But going to the very beginning, behold. Now, behold is not just a filler word. It's a, a very important marker in the Old Testament that says what's going to follow is worthy of great attention. It's an important announcement. So referring to Zechariah, it says, behold, your king is coming to you. 
there you have recognition that this one who is coming is exalted. He's not called an emperor. He's called the king. Which again, in the historical setting, the, the specific word here, king, means one who is lawfully king. Not, not one who is trying to come in and take the kingship from someone else and they're not deserving of it, but it refers to one who is lawfully a king. What, a, what an acclamation of Jesus Christ's credentials that he is worthy to be king. He is the one who is not just going to come and be emperor of the Roman Empire, which he was not claiming, not a political kingship, but a spiritual kingship, and eventually a kingship that will be universal and visible at his triumphant second coming. So what a claim of the exaltation of Jesus Christ is, is couched here in this entrance into the holy city. And then if you drop down to verse 9, we have the familiar cry, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And if we were to go back and look at Psalm 118, in particular verses 25 and 26, that's where this passage comes from. But the entire psalm is part of a collection of psalms that are called the great Hallel or, or praise psalms. And these came to take on the custom of being sung as one got closer to the city of Jerusalem, as you were going into the city to prepare for Passover. And so here you have another acclamation now, Hosanna, the, the phrase means God save us. The, the psalm calling out to God for God to deliver his people. What, what a poignant statement here that isn't Jesus heading to Jerusalem in his humiliation to suffer and die for the purpose of delivering you and me from the power and guilt of sin. And it's not just God save us, but then notice the acclamation, Son of David, a messianic title. Uh, th this, this title, if you're looking in your Bibles, is evident in the chapter right before this. If you look at Matthew chapter 20 and verses 29 through 31, Jesus comes upon two blind men. And you notice there, it says this, and as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, let, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. What you don't find there is Jesus correcting them for ascribing to him the title Son of David. In other words, he acknowledges that title. 
and, and this is all building to his entrance into Jerusalem as a very public announcement that it's time, that everything he said before is true, but now it is being vocalized and publicized in a very powerful and deliberate manner. And so we've got the glory of Christ in his humiliation. Now we're looking at the glory of Christ in his exaltation, that, that he is worthy of worship. But there's one other element in this. Not only is Christ worthy of worship, but he is worthy of worship because he is the fulfillment of all scripture. And so you see in verses four and five, where we refer to this prophecy that Zechariah said, and the prophecy of Zechariah, if you look at the context of his prophecy, was set in relationship to David returning triumphant to the city of Jerusalem after he squelched the rebellion by Absalom. And so the occasion is one of celebration. Why? Because your king has come back and he has been victorious. But you see in verse four, right before the prophecy, it says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken. That this is the completion of what that prophecy that Zechariah gave was pointing to. Then as well, when you consider the quotation of the words from Psalm 118, why are they being referenced here in this? Because this is a fulfillment of what Psalm 118 was being heralded centuries before by the people of Israel. God, save us. Send a deliverer to deliver your people. Let me read for you the words from Luke chapter 24, which come into play after Jesus's resurrection. In Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 47. Jesus appears to his disciples, one of his uh, many post-resurrection appearances. But in Luke 24, verses 44 through 47, it says, Then he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. There Jesus takes all of scripture, summarizes the Old Testament into the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, and says to his disciples, this was all pointing to, to me. And he includes his humiliation in that, as well as his exaltation, uh, that he would come to suffer and die, and on the third day, rise from the dead. So Palm Sunday and Passion Week should remind us that, that to know Christ 
you must see his glory clearly in his humiliation and his exaltation, with the result being that we might serve him more faithfully. So what happened in Jerusalem must not just stay in Jerusalem. And that is why this very familiar narrative must never become stale or, or commonplace in our thinking at this time of year. Join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, may we go over and over this text throughout the week that we would see the glory of Christ, that we would rejoice in who we are in Christ, and that we would serve you more faithfully because we know Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.